QC Pod is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more, visit queenspodcastlab.org. I'm here with Dr. Harold Schechter, a true crime writer, really the godfather of the modern true crime literary genre. He's a specialist in serial killers and a professor emeritus at Queen's College. Dr. Schechter, thank you for joining me. Well, my pleasure. So you're a true crime writer, and I'm on the other end of that spectrum as a true crime consumer, you could say. What is it that draws people like you and I to such dark content like true crime? First of all, it's very important to recognize that there has always been a mass audience for true crime narratives. People sometimes think it's a very recent phenomenon, but in fact, some of the earliest true crime books were printed pretty much after the invention of the Gutenberg printing press. Uh, and some of the earliest um, pieces of writing that were printed in our own country after the English Puritans came over were true crime pamphlets and true crime broadsides. So there's always been this appetite for that kind of lurid, sensationalistic material. A quote that I often use from the Greek philosopher Plato is, the virtuous man dreams what the wicked man does. So the point of that quote is that everybody, all of us moral law-abiding citizens, have a dark side to our personalities. You know, following the law and obeying a strict moral code, you know, in a way takes a toll on us because um, there is a part of ourselves that is still rooted in the archaic savagery of our primate ancestors. And, uh, you know, that part has to be suppressed, but um, it needs some kind of outlet. And true crime is one of the ways it gets that outlet. I mean, Freud deals with that in his uh, classic book, Civilization and Its Discontents. You know, these deep, primitive, instinctual urges need, you know, we, 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 we create civilization to protect us from nature, um, but it comes as a cost, you know, to certain very primal, instinctual urges, which require an outlet. And, uh, you know, civilization, you know, our culture uh, has provided socially acceptable outlets for that. Um, true crime is one. I mean, if you look at the realm of popular culture, it's basically mostly sex and violence. Um, and the reason for that is, again, that part of ourselves, what the psychologist Jung called the shadow side, needs some uh, way to ventilate itself so or satisfy itself. So that's my feeling on that subject. So it's kind of like this, the same thing as a, an obsession with like scary movies. Yeah. You know, Stephen King has a metaphor. Stephen King wrote a very, very good book about um, horror. And he uses a metaphor of, you know, somewhere in the sub-basement of our minds, there's a trap door. And if you open it up, there are all these savage alligators swimming around. And every now and then you got to throw them a piece of meat. So, you know, stuff like true crime is, you know, that meat. You know, speaking of horror, I've noticed that, uh, or at least what I gathered from a lot of the serial killers that you've written about, especially your earlier books, you know, Ed Gein and Albert Fish, they're almost like these real personification of uh, traditional horror characters like werewolves and vampires. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Very astute observation. In fact, when I first began writing in this, my earliest true crime books, uh, the ones about Fish and Ed Gein, uh, and H.H. Holmes, I thought immodestly that I was inventing a new literary genre because I thought of them as true horror more than true crime for precisely the reason that you gave. You know, I, I, I was very interested in the ways that certain very extreme murderers 
uh, get transformed into these uh, figures of, or, you know, they, they, they get assimilated to these pre-existing archetypal stories about monsters and so on. And it's one of the reasons why certain serial killers are immediately described in the paper in supernatural term, terms, because they do seem like these mythological monsters made flesh and blood. And again, it's one of the things that drew me to become, you know, to the whole genre. Uh, I grew up I'm old now. <laughs> I'm a baby boomer. Uh, you know, when I grew up in the in the 1950s, American culture was steeped in horror entertainment. You know, I grew up watching all the old horror movies on these creature feature shows. You know, spending or misspending my Saturdays uh, going to these children's matinees of you know grade Z horror movies. They had all these horror comics. So I was always very interested in horror and monsters. And, why, and then as I grew older, began to think about these things in a different way, why uh, people crave stories of monsters and horror. And uh, yeah, so I, I think uh, some of the true crime stuff, like the earliest books I, I read, uh, do deal with figures whose crimes are so completely horrific that they came to see in the seem in the popular imagination, like these fairy tale ogres come to life. Right. And you touched on the concept of this uh, immortalization of, of certain crimes or killers in pop culture. And I always thought it was fascinating that certain crimes become mythologized and they become such key narratives in our history, while other crimes, which may be equally, if not more heinous, get forgotten and fall into obscurity. Huh. Your mind and my mind work very much alike. If you look, I actually address that um, issue very directly uh, in the introduction to my new book, uh, which came out last Tuesday. And in fact, that chapter, which you might want to take a look at, was excerpted in uh, maybe yesterday or the day before. If you go to uh, the um, uh, site Literary Hub, Lit Hub, they have a crime read section. And a couple of days ago, they excerpted from the introduction of my new book, which addresses that very issue, because I've given a lot of thought to that, you know, why certain crimes become undying parts of our culture mythology and other equally heinous or sometimes much more heinous crimes. You know, they might become media sensations for a short while, but they quickly disappear. And uh, I do have some theories about that. <laughs> well, one thing is what I've come to discover as a historian of American crime is that there are certain what I like to think of as signature crimes that come to preoccupy particular eras uh, for different social and cultural reasons, but basically because they seem to crystallize or embody or epitomize certain kinds of widespread anxieties that are afflicting the culture at the moment. So, for example, uh, years ago, I was writing a book about a famous uh, poison murder case that happened in New York City around 1900. And in researching that, I discovered that back then, people were as obsessed with poison murderers as, let's say, we were in the 80s and 90s with serial killers. And, and, and the reason for that, I think, is that people really had were and had good reason to be afraid of being poisoned um, because it was, you know, there, there was no regulation, no government regulation of food or drugs. There was no FDA. Uh, people were, you know, marketing all kinds of toxic things. You can go to the drugstore, you know, buy some cough medication that contained 
strychnine, you know, and people, you know, parents, mothers were buying milk for their babies from grocery stores, you know, that contained all these toxic substances. They called it swill milk. So, you know, people never knew, you know, if something they put in their mouth was going to kill them. So the poisoner became sort of the nightmare incarnation of that fear. You know, different times in the 1950s, for example, the uh, the juvenile delinquent, you know, was this great boogeyman that haunted the imagination. So a crime, there's a, a famous crime called the Cape Man murder in New York City, again, which seemed to embody that particular terror and became very, very famous. You know, the Charles Manson crimes, you know, Manson's family seemed to be the living night, you know, the, the living realization of every middle American's nightmare about sex and drug crazed hippies and so on and so forth. You know, the OJ case, you know, as I know from my own research is you can find virtually any day somewhere in the United States, you know, a case of a cuckolded husband, you know, rejected husband or boyfriend stalking and murdering his wife or girlfriend, you know, but the OJ case brought so many so many uh, issues of race and celebrity that were very, very acute at that moment. Anyway, so I think that's one of the reasons that certain crimes take on the status, uh, whereas other crimes, as horrific as they might be, they don't resonate in that way with the public. So your new book, Maniac, is about a school shooting that happened uh, a while ago. Yeah. And I, I hadn't heard of this case. So, so with this theory, would you think that would you say that if the shooting in the book happened today, it would be more frequently talked about because mm -hmm. there's this very current fear of mass killings and school shootings and things like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. In the book, I describe it as a horror ahead of its time, you know, because when it happened, it, it was the deadliest school massacre in U.S. history. Um, it was the worst case of domestic terrorism before Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. But again, it seemed it wasn't that as horrific as it was. It wasn't the kind of crime in a way that meant anything to people. Um, you know, now, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, and perhaps you've noticed, is that uh, our obsession with serial killers is kind of faded. You know, they still appear all the time in movies and TV shows, but, but it doesn't dominate people's, you know, nightmares the way it did back in the 80s and 90s. And it's been supplanted, you know, by a fear of mass murders, um, which got going with the Columbine killings. I think 9-11 had a lot to do with that. You know, so now, instead of the serial sex murderer, you know, instead of, you know, like a, a woman's fears that they're going to go to a bar and pick up the wrong guy, it's going to be Ted Bundy or something, you know, that's really faded. You know, now the fear is you're going to be someplace and some human time bomb, you know, is going to detonate. So, yes, the Bath School Massacre, it did make national headlines for a while. A couple of days later, we sort of supplanted from the front pages because Charles Lindbergh made his transatlantic flight, which was a momentous event at the time. Uh, but beyond that, again, it wasn't the kind of crime that spoke, you know, to the dominant anxieties of the age. Whereas, God forbid, if something like that happened today, as you say, it would be, you know, 24-7 news coverage. You know, speaking of the, of the 90s, I initially wanted to, to talk, um, to have this interview with you because I really wanted to discuss, I guess you could call them serial killer groupies, for lack of a better term. 
I was I was inspired by a TikTok that I saw. Um, it was it was a fan edit, which was made by someone who is my age, you know, a, a teenage girl. And it was a fan edit of Eric Menendez, who um, you know murdered his parents in the '90s. And granted, the Menendez brothers' trial was a little more layered and controversial than than a blatant you know crazed murderer but it was still so dystopian to see this young girl today swooning over a convicted murderer who's still in prison and was probably in prison since she was born and i've i've seen this in much more extreme cases you know people mostly women being romantically involved with horrific murderers and and serial killers the whole phenomenon of women, you know, being very attracted, you know, to psychopathic killers. I mean, that, you know, that's been going on forever. Virtually every case that I've researched going back to the 19th century, you know, the mid 19th century, there've always been, you know, we now call groupies, you know, who have uh, attended the trials of some of these really horrific killers. I mean, there are these horrible serial killers, some of whom like are so repulsive, you know, they can never like probably get a date in real life as soon as they're convicted of these, you know, hideous crimes, uh, you know, they just become inundated with love letters. And, you know, Charles Manson, I got married to a 20 year old girl or something when he was in his eighties or something. You know. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. And, you know, even in a, a broader scope, it seems that the majority demographic of true crime fanatics are women. So why do you think that, this extreme form of fan behavior happens with with women and these horrendous killers. Well, I think it plays to two things. Um, this kind of you know, it's an extreme pathological exaggeration of this kind of bad boy thing. You know, if you look at movies, romance movies, you know, the woman traditionally there's always some nice, boring guy she's involved with, and then some bad boy comes along on his motor. So this is an extreme form of that. And I think it's also, there's a little beauty in the beast fantasy going on. It's like, my love will domesticate this monster. Yeah, I've seen young people today, you know, romanticizing Richard Ramirez. And I'm like, have you forgotten what he's done? This guy's awful. I was once on a a a show, TV show. Uh, I don't know if you know who uh, Henry Lee Lucas was. I mean, he was, first of all, one of, I mean, you know, he made Richard Ramirez look like Brad Pitt. I mean, he was like so physically repulsive and, you know, he committed these horrible crimes. Um, but, but again, I, you know, I was on a show, um, I was actually on a couple of TV shows back then um, with a woman who was in love with him and so on and so forth. So, yeah, they all, I mean, I think Ramirez got married in prison. I have a funny anecdote. Do you know Edmund, Edmund Kemper? I, I knew somebody once who was a girlfriend of a guy who was in jail and he was in prison. He was in prison with Edmund Kemper. And this woman was visiting her boyfriend once who was not a murderer. Well, actually, he wasn't a murderer. But anyway, <laughs> but he wasn't a serial killer. But anyway, Kemper had this girlfriend and this woman that I knew, you know, said to this woman, how can you have anything to do with this guy? You know, he was like capitating women and doing this to them, doing that to them. And this one said, oh, he's so over that. That's so funny. You know, my favorite is the the Jeffrey Dahmer fan club. Yeah. Because not only is he 
terribly disturbed, but he's also not interested <laughs> in women at all. Right. Anyways, so I've often heard the argument, especially today in this sort of golden age of true crime that we're in right now, that this fascination with um, these morbid crime cases is in part perpetuated or encouraged by you know violent movies and video games that are popular today and i understand you have a book about this argument do you want to talk a little bit about that well i i wrote a book called savage pastimes which grew out of uh, a new york times magazine piece i did uh years ago you know the premise of the book is that twofold one it demonstrates that contemporary pop culture is not only arguably less violent than the popular culture of the past, but also, you know, it illustrates that every time a new form of popular entertainment is created, it provokes the same reaction, which is all these self-appointed moral watchdogs, you know, start attacking it as something that's going to corrupt the morals of the youth. And this goes back years ago, I wrote a book about um, a uh, 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 13-year-old serial killer named Jesse Pomeroy back in the 1860s. He was known as the Boston Boy Fiend. And he was a classic psychopathic sex killer who fortunately was, well, I mean, he, unfortunately, uh, he, he murdered and mutilated two even younger children, but at least he was caught at that point and couldn't continue his uh, homicidal career. But anyway, as soon as he was caught, uh, people started claiming uh, that he had been provoked to commit the act because he had read too many uh, violent dime novels. You know, dime novels back then, you know, were these cheap, they were a little bit precursors of, well, they were precursors of the pulp novels of the 30s, and they were very violent. I mean, they're incredibly violent, but it turned out Pomeroy had never even read one. I mean, this argument has been going, and, you know, when radio was invented, there were the same arguments, and when movies were invented, there were the same arguments. Uh, you know, back in my day, there was a whole uh, crusade. There was actually a Senate committee set up to investigate the comic book industry, you know, because there was a very famous book called Seduction of the Innocent by a, a famous New York psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham uh, that claimed that comic books were turning kids into uh, juvenile delinquents and at that time what was considered, you know, an equally horrific thing, homosexuals. Uh, you know, it was rock and roll. So, yeah, I mean, nowadays it's going to be video games. And, and of course, every, what, what happens is, you know, then people get older and, you know, they look back at all this stuff in their youth is very benign. I, I, I'm absolutely sure the day will come, you know, when people are going to be looking back and thinking about how come kids aren't playing innocent games like Grand Theft Auto anymore? You know, everybody's going to be plugged into a virtual reality helmet and they're going to be actually feeling the blood, you know, the, when the zombies splatter on their face. I mean, there's, you know, there's no question about that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I have a, I have a lot of movie posters on my wall and, um, you know, I have one of Patrick Bateman from American Psycho and I have a Shining poster <laughs> with, with Jack Torrance in the ending scene. And my mom always jokes around. She's like, why would you want to look at that all the time? You know, it's, it's going to corrupt your mind. <laughs> Well, just reading a quote from Alfred Hitchcock, you know, after he made Psycho, you know, people were claiming the same thing, you know, Psycho was going to turn uh, everybody into, you know, this crazed transvestite killer. Um, and, uh, and the interviewer said, you know, mentioned some guy who had murdered three women. And the last woman he murdered, he, he killed after seeing Psycho. And Hitchcock said, well, what movies did he see before he killed the first two women, you know? So, you know, that's always been going on. You know, the other thing about this issue is 
you never can tell what's going to set off a psycho. You know, Charles Manson ordered, you know, the Tate killings after listening to the Beatles' White Album, which is one of the most benign pieces of popular art ever created. Uh, and there have been any number of homicidal maniac who've gone on to killing sprees after, you know, like Albert Fish, you know, because he'd been reading the Bible. Right. And even in something that's that's meant to inspire goodwill can can inspire something uh, horrific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I watched an an HBO um, series, The Jinx, which is about uh, the crimes of Robert Durst. And I thought it was really unique. as a piece of true crime content because it was entirely based on on Robert Durst and it almost made you sympathize with him and and his cause and you know the episodes focused on his childhood and you almost felt like he was this misunderstood guy and I see a lot of true crime now tends to focus on the humanity in um, some pretty gnarly killers do you think that's dangerous? Well, all true crime focuses more on the perpetrator. I mean, again, people want to read about the killer and his killings, as regrettable as that might seem. So, yeah, that's always been the case. And, uh, I mean, think about the jinx and also then uh, the podcast Serial, I guess. I mean, I think they were turning points in the sense that, you know, what's happened is very fascinating to me. I mean, when I first started writing true crime, which was many years ago, um, it, it was still considered a totally sort of subcultural genre. I mean, I could convince my publisher to publish my first book in hardcover. You know, they were still seeing, you know, true crime as, you know, this kind of thing that was sold in, you know, bus station paperback book racks. Um, so, you know, and and this was even after In Cold Blood. But, you know, but 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 it's gained now such cultural legitimacy. Um, and I, I do think the jinx and, and uh, serial had something to do with that. You know, that is just so cool that you were you were deep into true crime way before it was hip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you for speaking with me, Dr. Schechter. I learned so much. You've been listening to the QC Pod, a podcast about all things Queens College. The QC Pod is a production of the Queens Podcast Lab. For more, visit queenspodcastlab.org forward slash QC Pod. Our show music is Lake Monsters by They May Be Giant. The episode was produced by Eden Ayala. Our head producer is Lizeth Moreno. Our show heads are Jason Tagaw and Joseph Cohen. I'm Eden Ayala. Thanks for listening.